This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're to talk about in this episode include... Fights with meaning. Animal spies. Publishing your session. And an unbuilt utopia. Hey, Ken, guess what project touted here on the podcast is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo? I don't have to guess. I can see here in the script that it's my pals at Phoenix. As in Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. When typing it into your search engine of choice, remember that all right-thinking persons and Swedes spell it F-E-N-I-X. Uh, and, of course, you don't mean to make a distinction between those two things, but you can tell that it addresses the right-thinking demographic because among its contributors is elliptonic raconteur Kenneth Height. Hop aboard the Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch goals expand its ambition to multiple volumes. Among its Heightian treasures, Dacian werewolves. Golden vampires. And the frost-caked western once upon a time in the north. Plus, from a roster of other contributors, singing spellcasters, Drowned Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters. Plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian. On Indiegogo until April 3rd, 2014. The clatter of dice, the thunk of miniatures, and the rustle of Doritos bags tell us we have entered at a particularly taut, even combative moment in the gaming hut. And Robin, you have uh, more role-playing game combats under your belt than most people. What would you like us to take away from that mess of spilled D20s and spattered hit points? What I want to look at today is in specifically the F20 tradition. F20, of course, being Dungeons and Dragons and all of its various offshoots and games that draw inspiration from that, uh, whether it's different versions of D&D or Pathfinder or 13th Age or other D20 fantasy games. The tradition in these games is very fight-heavy and especially... When you start out as a young uh, player or a GM, there's a lot of going to a door, finding creatures and fighting them and moving on to the next fight. And I thought we would do, uh, again, one of our kind of servicey pieces where we look at ways to make each fight matter in the storyline. Now, you've always got a fight that matters in some way to the extent that any fight will uh has the possibility that a character will die, and that's a huge consequence uh slash inconvenience, depending on the level you're at and how easy it is to get your characters raised from the dead. But other than that, basically, a fight is sort of a toll that you pay that costs you something nutritionally. And as F20 has evolved, it's easier and easier to heal up after a fight and be back to normal at the beginning for the next fight, in part because it's easier design-wise to balance fights if you know how strong the PCs are going in. So what that does is introduces a question of how you make each fight matter, what difference it makes to the storyline. So if you just have a fight where a fight has to occur and you assume that they get through the fight and then at the end of the fight they just move on with the storyline, is that as interesting as you can make it? So I thought we would try and come up with as many possible ways that a fight matters or not, as we can in the length of a segment. So I'm going to kick in the first one, which is a fight that 
test you uh, with a patron or someone whose favor you're trying to win. So, for example, the captain of the watch has some sort of resource or something that you want from them, or you just want his his favor uh, for later, and you might go and attack a bunch of goblins and drive them off in order to prove yourself to the captain of the watch. So the consequence of that fight is if you succeed, you impress the captain of the watch, you gain a contact or a patron, and if you fail, you are uh, stuck. And presumably, if you're using this sort of rule of uh, a negative consequence as the flipped version of a positive consequence, perhaps that means that you lose respect in the eyes of the captain of the watch. Uh, Ken, can you think of another possible uh, story consequence of an F-20 fight? I think that one of the things that, in addition to sort of, like you say, paying the toll to get the treasure, to get the experience, one of the other things that story consequence-wise an F-20 fight can do is it can remove an obstacle to further progress, not just by the players, but by other people within the setting. So if you've gone to the dungeon and you've killed the demi-lich that rules the dungeon or the blue dragon or whoever he is, the big boss in the in the thing, what that means now is whatever order was being kept within the dungeon is now broken. So maybe some of the monsters leave and start wandering around causing problems. But more to the point, all the people in the next village over or that tribe of indigent dwarves or another batch of adventuring guys who may be bigger jerks than you can now go in with impunity and do things within that dungeon. And so what it does is it but the dungeon is sort of like a big focused knot of story, and by cutting that knot, the characters have opened it up for everyone else in the setting to play with or be played with by. In the case of, you know, if a um, uh, a tribe of ghouls was held in service to the Demi-Lich, and so now they're free to go out and try and uh, get the elf corpses, which are their most prized kind of corpses because they're so tasty and, and light and delicious on the tongue. Uh, yeah, the bones just melt in your mouth. They do. They're so nice. And it's not cannibalism if you eat an elf, people, so just keep that in mind. Uh, well, unless you're an elf. Well, pff, elves don't listen to podcasts. They listen to the beautiful <laughs> sighing of songs in the willow trees. Uh, and Mark Maron. They do listen to Mark they, Maron. Well, yeah, but everyone listens to Mark Maron. He's a genius. And that's an interesting example of a situation where these are unintended consequences or unforeseeable consequences of a fight. Uh, so that the uh, in the previous example, the players know that they're going in in an attempt to impress the captain of the watch. And here, they're going in for some other reason, perhaps the you know, good old-fashioned uh, looting and, uh, and menacing and so forth. And then on the other end, they discover that the things they have done have changed the status quo, uh, possibly in a good way, possibly in a bad way. And so you could then build on that the next time around, uh, now that they know that uh, clearing out this one group of creatures led to an even worse group of creatures moving in, the next time they attack somebody, they might know ahead of time, well, uh, we need to go over here and close off this pass so that the worst creatures than the second worst group of creatures don't uh, come in. And so you could sort of oscillate then between knowing consequences and unknowing consequences, because one thing about dramatic stakes is that generally uh, you want the players to know what the stakes are. It is rhythmically apt and fun to occasionally sideswipe them with something they didn't know was going to happen. You you want to surprise them occasionally, but in general, you will invest them more in the fight. There's a purpose for having them engage in a fight if they know why they're doing it and uh, what they're looking for. So another classic example there is the rescue scenario where 
there is an NPC that they care about who is under threat. Either the NPC is directly held hostage, in which case that adds an interesting tactical element to the fight because you not only need to defeat the enemy creatures, but you need to defeat them in such a way that prevents them from killing their hostage. Or it could also be something where they have poisoned the NPC who is safely at home in your village, but you need to go and defeat the group of creatures in order to get the antidote. Or even a case where, you know, the they may not be directly responsible for giving a deadly magical disease to someone you care about, but you need to go and fight this uh, group of creatures either to get the uh, the cure to the disease from them or as a favor for someone else who has the cure for the disease. So again, you have a situation where the players know going in what the victory condition is that they'll achieve other than just beating up the creatures. Have you got another one, Ken? Another possibility is that uh, in addition to sort of the unforeseen circumstance or something like that, that you have a situation where the fight doesn't necessarily, you know, establish the PC's re- reputation in the eyes of one particular important NPC, but it serves as sort of their introduction to uh, the rest of, of, of the universe of, of Bravos and Troublemakers. So if they have had, a, and especially it's good if there's a particularly challenging boss fight at the beginning of their career, you know, maybe around second or third level, and they kill something that's way above their head, you know, they take down a, a hill giant or something. And that can be, you know, social currency. And so everywhere they go, you know, you know, you know, people are about to muscle up to them, and someone says, no, these are the guys that took down Thargak the hill giant. You know, and they're like, oh, my God, oh, well, never mind. Uh, your your ale is on the house, good sir. <laughs> and that can be both good because they can get free stuff and they can get, you know, uh, social respect. But it can also be bad in the sort of uh, uh, brave little tailor sense that now everyone thinks that they're more powerful than they actually are. And they're going to be uh, given opportunities to fail much more dramatically when it's like, oh, no, the red dragon is, you know, um, coming after the city. Oh, don't worry. We've got the guys who took down... Thargak the Hill Giant, they they can take him down no problem, and that presents the the player characters with sort of an ongoing story choice. Do we try and live up to our reputation, or do we try and live down to our reputation, or destroy our reputation, either consciously by saying, no, no, that was just a fluke, Thargak was having, you know, some bad lung congestion that day, or do they sort of make themselves so annoying that no one wants them to save the city regardless? So the players have decided that they want to tamp down their reputations. Uh, How do you as GM, or DM I guess in this case, engineer a fight that brings them closer to that goal? Well, this assumes that the players don't actually intend to throw the fight. I mean, if if they want to throw the fight, then they can be approached by, you know, an evil wizard who's got a, a, you know, a a sense, um, a confusion spell or something, and he's like, hey, I I understand you guys have got a problem and you want to get out from under it. Why don't you throw the fight? Uh, Let me loot the town, and I'll give you, you know, 20% of what I get. And that way, you will look like, you know, you tried, you'll still get some money, and I'll get the town, which is what I really want because of its, you know, opal spring or whatever it is. And that, I think, can make an interesting option where they have to sort of decide how important is it to uh, slip out from under. The uh, Another possibility is that you can present them with a fight that just really does overmaster them, but it has consequences other than 
they're dead or all their stuff is taken away. The fight is, you know, they, they, they go up against, you know, a, a stone giant instead of a hill giant or a cloud giant. And he, you know, bashes them around. And then once he's done, it's like, okay, now that I've got you guys who killed Thargak, I'm going to take you to a different part of the, of, of the realm and put you down and send you after the Griffins who have been giving us, you know, fits. And if you die, that's fine because you killed Thargak, our buddy. But if you don't die, that's even better because you kill a bunch of griffins for us. One of the things about F-20 is that because the fight is its central currency, the way that, for example, the handout is the central currency of Call of Cthulhu, that you want to always present the players with problems that fights can solve. Um, and, of course, solve includes as a subset lead to another more interesting problem. Um, and so, for example, a, another classic stake that you can have the players have in a fight is revenge. So you have the bad guys do something terrible that exacts a psychic toll on them, and then they get the chance to go and defeat that character and or those creatures. And so if they win, they get the satisfaction of revenge. And if they lose, they are forced uh, to uh, limp away, uh, shaking their fists and uh, plotting to... Uh, somehow overcome that and come back and get him. And that's a case where if you're trying to, the goal is to knock off a particular uh, enemy, uh, whether you're out for revenge or whether you've been hired to assassinate a particular evil wizard or whatever it is, where having that character flee counts as a defeat just as surely as if they uh, reduce you to a low enough hit point total that you have to flee in order to avoid a, a total party kill. So that, again, is something where there uh, is not only an emotional stake in the fight, but that emotional stake is reflected in the tactics of the fight. So in that's a fight where you not only want to beat up the bad guy, but you need to move around the battle mat so as to cut off his avenue of escape. And the trick there is, as a DM is to make it clear to the players from the jump that that's the interesting thing about this encounter. So when they go in, you say to them, oh, look, there's a, a passageway that he could easily deke down if you manage to uh, whittle him down far enough. You'd better go and seal that off. So you want to give them the tactical information that they need in order to fully bring out the emotional resonance of the scene and the stakes in that scene. Yeah, in addition to providing uh, emotional color and sort of mood and theme type equivalencies, you can use the fight as the DM to provide sort of a long, uh, sort of an emergent storyline. If, if you look at, you know, how a, a football team rises to the Super Bowl or a b baseball team rises to the pennant, and you look back and you can say, oh, here's where the Minnesota Twins nearly screwed it for everybody, or here's where, uh, if it hadn't been for that one lucky uh, catch, we wouldn't have been able to get past the Detroit Tigers, or whoever it is. And you could build that same sort of league effect into fights. So instead of using a given fight to advance story, you use a series of fights to advance story, and a lot of that is going to not necessarily be you having an outcome in mind, like they're going to go from a bunch of kobolds to a bunch of orcs to a bunch of ghouls to a bunch of gnolls with uh, crossbows, to a demi-lich, you're going to be providing them a number of potential league opponents, so things that stay roughly their same level. So that might be another batch of player characters, or it might be a humanoid race that can level up like gnolls or orcs can, potentially, or it might be 
a individual big bad who has a bunch of sort of um, uh, disposable tools of the appropriate level. So, and it wouldn't be just a single big bad, it would be four or five league big bads, so that each fight, as the players begin to sense, hey, we keep seeing these same coats of arms or these same orcs, becomes a a series of an emergent story in which the the characters are telling the story of their rise to sort of dominance over the local uh you know dungeon delving ecosystem or even their rise to kingship over the over the land because they're the best at killing monsters or at least their rise to a position of sort of power and respect and trust in the larger community because generally um whenever they're around uh, there's a bunch of dead monsters and that makes everyone happy i think that you know people um if the, the the thing with F20 fights is because you can look at them as such one-off events. It's like, well, this was the time we fought the spiders, and this was the time we fought the sturges, and this was the time we fought something else that begins with us, the sylphs. And so you, um, uh, what, what I think is, is more interesting is if you encourage the players to, and lay the groundwork for them, treating them as a series of fights, as something, you know, as organic as, as a baseball uh, season or a football season. And, and how do you bring that out in play? How do you make them feel that... Uh as they work their way through the S's, that these things are connected and add up to a story rather than a series of disparate encounters. I, I think one way is um, you can put uh, coats of arms, like I said, or some other heraldic emblem. You know, so you've got your red hand orcs, and even if you don't see any red hand orcs, it's like, hey, that that knoll was wearing a red hand uh, emblem on his belt. Maybe he's in league with those orcs. Or you have other people in the... So, so you're foreshadowing, basically. You're foreshadowing, but you're establishing that there's a bunch of different competitors. And then uh, you, you could have them, you know, when they go back to the tavern, someone else can be saying, oh, man, that was pretty boss what the anti-paladin did over there in uh, Barrow's Gorge, how he just killed all those whites. He's probably the best monster killer we know of. And so set up a, a rivalry in, in that sense. But again, you don't want to set it up so the player characters immediately flash and say, we have one rival that we need to take down. We need to take down the Red Hand Orcs or the an an or we need to take down the Anti-Paladin. There needs to be a world in which the Red Hand Orcs exist, the Anti-Paladin exists, and maybe a, a good guy side, you know, the Unicorn uh, faction. And they're all people who've been touched by the Unicorn and made super pure, and that's why they go out and hunt monsters. And so they might, you know, wear Unicorn badges or wear nothing but white or use only impaling weapons or something like that. And so there's a bunch of factions that are all competing, in a sense, to clear out the most dungeons or to have the most fights or to get the most uh, a treasure. And the player characters know that they are in this sort of competition. And ideally, each of the, of the big bads is such that they don't feel like they're strong enough to just go after their, you know, um, uh, their home turf directly and whale on them until they get to, you know, the point at which you consider it to be a climax. And one really good way to emphasize this multiple faction side is you say, oh my lord, did you hear the unicorns just blew apart the anti-paladin's forces at the holy well, and they just destroyed them. They, they Oh, it was a crushing defeat. The anti-paladin's going to uh, take a, a years to come back from that. They they took out all of his um uh, his trained uh, uh, night hounds and, and death steeds, or whatever it is. And that gives the players a sense that they're in an ecosystem, but they're in an ecosystem that is narrowing. And the narrowing is, I think, the important part. And on an encounter level, the way that you can execute that is you can sometimes say to yourself, well, what question does this encounter pose? So, uh, in classic narrative, uh, it's a series of questions that you pose to the audience and then that you pay off later. So, if you just say, well, they find a bunch of regalia that matches this 
crest that they don't know, and they find that in this one encounter, and then the next encounter where they find out what the crest means, both of those encounters then have a meaning beyond themselves, because the first one introduces a question that the players want answered, and the second one gives an answer or a uh, a partial answer or something that leads on further, and that gives a sense that things are connected, and that also gives the emotional stake of the question in the first encounter and the payoff of the question in the following encounter. And also, in a more prosaic sense, another motivation for a fight can be gaining information so that you as the players know going in that you need to find a particular enemy and get a clue from him, whether that's the location of a tower that you need to find or the uh, membership of a conspiracy or whatever that is, that then defeating them in order to interrogate them is another sort of classic thing that weaves the fights together. And then, of course, the information that you gain from the group in the first encounter, that's the answer to a question. And then that then leads you off to the tower or to rooting out the other members of the conspiracy or whatever it is. And so, again, you are creating your encounter so that it has identifiable stakes or it either poses or answers a question. And uh, on that note, I think the uh, the question that we have before us is, is there another segment? And I bet, after a brief commercial message, there is. Once Upon a Time is a storytelling card game. You know this because it's been a spot sponsor on the show for the past four weeks. But did you know that there are a bunch of expansions available for Once Upon a Time? Before now, there were three expansions, Seafaring Tales, Enchanting Tales, and Create Your Own Storytelling Cards expansion. Seafaring Tales lets you weave tales of pirates, sailing ships, stowaways, and mermaids. And scurvy? Well, there is no vitamin C card in the set. Enchanting Tales adds magical princess stories, brooms, jealousy, woodsmen, godmothers. And create your own cards. It seems pretty self-explanatory. At this point, the fearless listener is asking, hey, what's this before now business? Well heard, fearless listener. Now there's a brand new fourth expansion for Once Upon a Time, Nightly Tales. Having rushed out to grab your copy of Nightly Tales, you'll tell a story from cards like Courtly Love, and A Herald, and The Reckless Aspect. And Battlefields and Betrayals, although that's Courtly Love, not Courtney Love, so obviously there's some crossover. And ending <laughs> cards like Because of Her Skill with a Lance, Women Were Allowed to Become Knights from Then On. Nightly indeed. Shall we recap? Have at it, good sir. There are three, nay, four expansions available right now for Once Upon a Time, 3rd Edition. And Nightly Tales is brand new. And it adds valorous deeds, bold characters, and all manner of Arthurian elements to your Once Upon a Time game. 38 new story cards and 17 new ending cards, all told. For more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. Atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. For fearless listeners who like knights, quests, and telling stories, and who have an excellent taste in card games. The retinal scan and the pat-down on the way in tell us that we have once again entered the top-secret confines of the Tradecraft Hut. And uh, before we get started on the uh, main matter of our discussion here, we've just received some intelligence that uh, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff has uh, once again been nominated for a Golden Geek Award. So thanks 
uh, Golden Geek voters for uh, recognizing us again. Uh, that's uh, very exciting and very gratifying. And uh, very, uh, it's a signal honor, I think. The Golden Geek is one of those uh, elite awards that everyone sort of uh, looks at and says, there you go, that was that was proper, as opposed to it was apparently passed out in a cereal box. So we, we, uh, we very much are sensible of the of the, of the degree of recognition inherent in the uh, nomination. We wish everyone the best of luck. Uh, now, while we were saying that, a cat was looking at us funny, which brings us to the topic of animal spies. A while ago in Smithsonian Magazine, a writer named Tom Vanderbilt uh, wrote about the history, or possible history, of <laughs> animal trainers working as a CIA contractor. There's a gentleman named Bob Bailey, who's now uh, in his mid-70s, who talked to Vanderbilt, and he says that in addition to being the well-established inventor of the chicken tic-tac-toe machine, uh, which if you're old enough, you may remember from fairs and carnivals of yore, where the chicken will play electronic tic-tac-toe with you and uh, invariably defeat you, even if you're B.F. Skinner. But apparently, according to Bailey, uh, he was part of an organization through the IQ Zoo in Hot Springs, Arkansas, that trained animals for the CIA. So, Ken, leaving aside mere matters of the veracity of, of this account, uh, what do you make of this exciting tale of non-human spying? Well, first of all, it is exactly the sort of thing that you want to the CIA to have been doing in the mid-60s, in the great era of Mission Impossible and that sort of slightly over-the-top spy action, the Avengers, that that's when you want us to be training animals to, to do things. They talk about having uh, the guy who invented the cochlear implant uh, wiring up cats for sound, which sounds a little mean to the kitty, but on the other hand, you know, if you've got to defeat uh, communism in Asia, then that's the price you gotta you got to pay, I guess. I like the notion of ravens being trained to drop microphones on, win on windowsills. That's got a great... Uh, sort of a, a creepy vibe that you could uh, use in a lot of different ways. I think that um, even you know the, the notion that Flipper is a cover show for a CIA dolphin project in which the dolphins are swimming around spying on Soviet submarines and coming back and being <coughs> the truth to their uh, human friends and handlers. I, I think that's just delightful. I think something like that... Um, I'm certain, by the way, that the CIA tried to do this because the CIA literally was trying everything. And the degree to which it works, I guess it's sort of a he said, she said type thing. People who say it worked are pretty much, I guess, this guy Bailey. And people who say it didn't work are people who've got a bone to pick with the CIA for better or worse reasons. So I suspect that some of it worked and some of it didn't. And it's, you know, it's, it's not impossible to train birds to carry things. That's been going on since... Greek and Roman times. Right. And, and Bailey claims that because ravens are so smart, they could like, uh, you could train them to tell the difference between the big desk and the small desk. And they were also great at carrying stuff. So they could like carry file folders and stuff. So the, uh, just image of a bird flying out the window with a uh, file folder, uh, full of, uh, intelligence from, uh, Soviet sleeper agents is, uh, too beautiful to check, frankly. Exactly. And and also, of course, once you start having ravens sitting on windows looking in at intelligence targets, you are very much in Knights Like Agents country. And the notion that the player characters, the agents are um, are roaming around, having adventures, worrying about vampires, and suddenly they're being surveilled by ravens. And it turns out, no, it's not a vampire outfit. It's actually a Gladio leave-behind outfit, uh, a guy who trained ravens, and he's just an independent intelligence uh, collector. But 
his ravens have noticed other transformed birds around and are beginning to get worried, and their collective intelligence is what's leading the players into a conflict with the Strix or the other uh, bird-related vampire in the area. I think that could be great. Yeah, the, the idea of the independent operator brings up another great idea from this story, which is that the uh, animal training division was shut down after the church commission in the 70s. <laughs> Democrats hate animals. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, n- not entirely implausible since that did bring up a bunch of uh, sort of comical seeming schemes. Uh, and you could see a much more cautious CIA saying, oh, just shut down everything weird. <laughs> everything so, weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that, you know, raises the question of, you know, all of these cashiered, highly trained animal spies you know, burn notice for animals, I guess. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it could be, you know, the fox and the hound and the raven and the and the kitty are all out there um, uh, ronining their way around Central Europe or whatever. I, I think we've uh, we've got a pitch for Pixar. Absolutely. Here. We've got a pitch for any number of possible targets. Right. And, uh, you know, ravens are very intelligent and they keep up with their learned uh, behavior. So maybe, you know, there are uh, ravens who still have bugging devices who are going around on their own initiative uh, trying to win their way back. And uh, get all of those tasty treats again and now that they're shut out of the uh, IQ Zoo in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Ravens are also um, social tool-using animals, and they, I think, they teach their young to use tools. And so you could have, like by now, four or five generations later of ravens that have brought themselves up to understand that it's important to spy on people with a Slavic set of facial features and go in and take their stuff and that there could be an independent raven collective, you know, just sort of gathering information in some giant, uh, literally crow's nest uh, of intel and finding that with, you know, just the horde of, you know, Alfred Hitchcock style ravens lurking around it, cawing and dropping, you know, flash drives and, um, uh, and passports and such into a giant stack of intel waiting for someone to come by with a really good treat. I, I I love that image, and I, I think that either you can do all kinds of with it from the collective bird intelligence in uh, Tim Powers' Declare that uh, masks the genies all the way over to you know like you said our sort of seventies Disney or twenty or two thousands Pixar uh, version of uh, hilarious uh, independent operating animals. A hundred and one Dalmatians doesn't begin to cover it now. They also used uh, bugs. And not uh, electronic bugs, but uh, uh, mosquitoes and cockroaches. One of the things was to try and detect when mosquitoes would suddenly take notice that there were people in the area. Um, And that, if you want to go a little futuristic or, again, a little supernatural, uh, we know, for example, that cockroaches, one of the reasons that they they scatter when you turn the lights on is they have uh, photosensitive sensors on their legs so that alert them. Uh, to the presence of light. And so uh, it's a simple matter of magical transformation or genetic engineering to convert those sensors into cameras so that you sort of have uh, cockroach vision. And uh, they would only, I guess, tell you when somebody enters a room that you've got staked out. And then, of course, the cockroach scatters away. But the fact that you've suddenly, your remote read-up on your laptop comes up and shows you somebody coming into the apartment that you've got staked out, I think is a great image that then uh, leads you uh, in a really cool, unconventional way into your possibly far future or or supernatural or just sort of modern weirdo intelligence uh, campaign. And you could also um, present a lot of these as sort of, I mean, it's sort of inspirational for things vampires can actually use. I mean, the notion that uh, can actually use, that vampires can use in your NBA game you can have, for example, the notion that the cockroaches have got photoreceptors on their legs, 
that can become a distributed set of eyes for the vampires, right? That it's it's got omnidirectional view of a room, like a three D radar cloud uh, through the the cockroach legs. Uh, I also uh, I I keep coming back to the fact that every one of these, almost every one of these things, shows up on Mission Impossible, right? That there's uh, trained birds, there's trained cats, there's trained mosquitoes that fly in and give the guy a disease in in one episode. They've got them in a, in a tube. They've got trained bats in one. I think that there may have been a little bit of slop over in the 1960s as word of this gets out and that people who are sort of desperately looking for spy ideas may have uh, come across this. So I think that well, it's not a, a difficult uh, jump because the same people who were, uh, according to Bailey, working for the CIA were also supplying stuff to the entertainment industry. Yeah. So uh, you do not have to work to make that connection happen. And I think that you can kind of have an interesting spy and counter-spy thing where you've got, I mean, because the Soviets obviously had a lot of um, animal training. I mean, Pavlov literally was, you know, the the father of, of, of this kind of conditioning, and he's Russian, and that kept up in the Soviet era. They've got, uh, you could imagine a Soviet master animal trainer who's coming into America to try and break up the IQ Zoo or to learn its secrets with his own batch of tame animals. And so it's animal versus animal. His pockets full of rats. Exactly, his pockets full of rats, like a Nosferatu. And he's, um, uh, and he's, you know, from the Soviet version of this, where they're much meaner to the animals, and that's why we don't like them in addition to, you know, serving international communism. And that could be a, a great, you know, spy versus spy game, and the player characters could play the American animals, uh, who are, it, it could be like a, a bunnies and burrows or a mouse guard type game, where you've got that sort of deliberately small perspective thing, and you're caught in this sort of Cold War adventure, either in, you know, Arkansas, the Soviets send their guy in, or it's somewhere in Europe, if you're dueling against the Soviet equivalent of the IQ Zoo, the, you know, People's Animal uh, Discipline Institute or, or whatever it would be. I, you just call it the um, the Pavlov Institute, I'm sure, and it would be just as creepy and just as fun. And in a futuristic game, like a space opera game, you could play with this idea in a couple of ways, one of which is you could encounter an alien civilization that uh, uses engineered animal life in ordered uh, to spy on you. So you've got, you've got all these weird uh, alien life forms on this planet that you're exploring and they're coming and looking at you and only gradually do you realize that they are sending information back to uh, the sentient inhabitants of the planet. Or you could turn that on its head and you could envision a, uh, that you're part of an interstellar civilization that uses bioengineered animals as uh, uh, tools, including as surveillance tools, and they'll probably be used for all sorts of other things other than that, and that your uh, goal in an adventure, you could be the survey team that goes down and explores the new planet and tries to find the creatures that are especially adapted to that sort of work or that you can then use for that sort of work. So you're looking for either very trainable creatures or very engineerable creatures. And, uh, you know, as as we know from the Aliens franchise, there's nothing that could possibly go wrong with that. No. I, yes, once you've got a bunch of highly trained animals, everything goes perfectly from then on. And that's why W.C. Fields famously said, always work with children and animals. So before we uh, depart the Tradecraft Hut, uh, Ken, do you want to uh, ruin this by telling me what uh, the odds are you think that uh, what Bob Bailey is saying is actually true? Like I said, I'm sure that there was a project, and I'm also sure that uh, people who are 76 years old like to tell awesome stories of what they did before they were 76 years old. I think it's not impossible that any given bit of it was true. I think the notion that there is a gigantic animal program 
uh, at this sort of uh, Disney uh, live action feature level is probably over optimistic. And I think that if there had been a program of that magnitude, shutting it down in 75 would have been more problematic. So I think the, the sort of the, 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 a lot of the things that got shut down by the church committee were very sort of one-off run out of one office type things that they could then come back and say, look, we, we took out this whole program and it was two guys at a desk. And that's what the LSD program was. That's what uh, the MK Ultra stuff was. So I think that a lot of the, of the possibility is that they had, you know, they, they, they had, had a lot of feasibility studies. Governments love feasibility studies, but I, I would be amazed and uh, delighted, I should emphasize, if we really did have a, a team of ravens out there uh, borrowing file folders from uh, the desks of the KGB in Germany or Romania or wherever. Right. And it was just a, a subsidiary of a petting zoo, basically. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's an awesome petting zoo. I mean, yes. you get to see an, an, an educated pig. And that's that better than most petting zoos. But on the other hand, the fact that Marchetti, who is a uh, famous whistleblower, mentions the acoustic cat program, I think that guarantees that something was going on. That unless he was just making it up entirely out of whole cloth to make the CIA look ridiculous, which I suppose is possible, I think he must have gotten that from somewhere because I I think that Marchetti's stuff has been you know there's been you know, skeptical light shown on it, but I I think that his level of completely making stuff up is not uh, as high as uh, the CIA would like to believe it was. Well, on that note, we'd uh, better depart the Tradecraft Hut before our security clearances expire. Staging a no-knock raid to flash its badge and confiscate your me-go fetuses, it's Delta Green, Tales from Failed Anatomies, now on Kickstarter. A book of Delta Green fiction by Dennis Detwiller, with bookend stories by one Robin D. Laws. Check out some of Dennis's chilling stories on the Kickstarter page. Having hit the core funding goal, the Rugo Skang at Arc Dream is now commissioning stories from other authors. Illustrious names already funded include Adam Scott Glancy, Cody Goodfellow, Daniel Harms, Shane Ivey, and, hey, what do you know, Kenneth Height. Also coming out on the stretch, a series of audio productions, with three funded so far. These are from Chris Lackey and Chad Pfeiffer of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, so they're sure to be great. Confirm that for yourself by listening to an excerpt, also at the Kickstarter page. Upcoming stretch goals include new Delta Green stories by Jeff Carter, David J. Fielding, Laurel Halbani, and Jason McCall. Make them scramble for more by keeping that funding coming. $10 backers get the ebook edition, plus an option to buy it in print at the minimum possible cost from Drive-Thru Fiction. Pledge $15 to get all the bonus stories. Fund enough bonus tales and the hard copy option for a second volume opens up. Kick in $30 for a security clearance, earning you alpha playtester access to the upcoming new Delta Green RPG. This standalone game based on the BRP engine comes from a writhing cabal of Cthuloid talent and gets its own Kickstarter later this spring. Hey, what's your story about, Robin? Uh, well, it's got a familiar presence in the mythos, uh, but you're not used to hearing a story from their point of view, shall we say. And what about yours? Mine is about the hunt in the ruins of post-war Germany for a Karotechia war criminal 
for a specifically Delta Green version of Operation Paperclip. Tales from Failed Anatomies is at Kickstarter until February 28th. Ebook of Volume 1 in April, in print in May. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. John Wilson asks Ken and Robin, I just ran an awesome homebrew campaign with my gaming group. I should publish my notes as a game supplement. What is the advice for turning great play experiences into good, usable, published scenarios or settings? Does this ever work out well? <laughs> Robin, I think technically you and I have both published great play experiences if in the sense that we're playtesting stuff that eventually gets published. Is there a more narrow sense in which you're playing a game just sort of ad hoc or at random and something really awesome happens? You think, I need to enshrine that. I need to write a, a supplement around that. I need to write a module about this awesome adventure. Well, I, I think the question is sort of bringing us into fantasy heartbreaker territory, right? One of the clues here is that the, the word homebrew yeah. is something that uh, it's almost sort of kind of an old timey reference now. Uh, but it assumes a D&D &D variant, you know, before you even needed the word F20 to describe what D&D &D vari variants were. Um, and it, I think the question is presupposing something that starts out being your game that is then so awesome that you start saying, well, I would love to publish my game someday, my home game that I ran in my setting that I created with my uh, more elaborate infravision rules uh, and recreate the cool experience that I had with my set of players. And I think that's what separates the question from just any game designer experience where I certainly hope everybody's playtesting their games before they're publishing them, I, I would assume so. Um, but something that begins as one thing, and how do you turn it into the other published thing? And I would say that the two questions are, is the cool thing about your game reproducible? And is the cool thing about your game actually different? Um, and so uh, which one of those do you want to tackle first? Um, I think the, uh, the question of reproducible, we sort of danced around a little bit before when we were talking about um, great moments in gaming and how it's, it's hard to get uh, something that's truly an emergent, you know, sort of jazz combo moment to show up in the rules or even in the text of a, of a game supplement. Uh, we, we were talking. You were talking about the betrayal at the end of your Gay and Reach uh, playtest, for example. Or I was talking about the the Shakespeare game where the one character turns into a Shakespearean villain, and we have to, and that that became the focus of the game. And obviously, both of those would be very difficult experiences to translate into a a, a, a game supplement, as the question says, much less an entire game. I, I think you and I both agree that individual experiences, no matter how excellent, are seldom reproducible in game mechanical terms or in supplementary terms. The, the thing that makes them so excellent is the players and the GM and that combination in that moment, not necessarily the setting or whatever the, the designer, even if it's also the GM, might have written. Right, because reproducibility is not only difficult to attain, it's also, I would argue, undesirable, because what you're trying to do in a role-playing game is create a venue for other gamers to have their own spontaneous transcendent moments rather than trying to have you reproduce theirs. So a bunch of cool things that happened in your game uh, are going to be very hard to uh, put down into uh, an adventure that will uh, keep people on track because you'll have to probably railroad uh, people a bunch to lead them to that moment that you're trying to get them to reproduce for you. Um, and 
uh, it sort of misses, I think, the, the point of role-playing. There's always a tension with any published scenario as, in that it is inevitably more contained and uh, requires more adjustment uh, from a GM and a group of players in order to make it collaborative uh, and uh, open-ended, but that that really comes into play if your objective is to make them repeat the cool play experience uh, that you had. And so if we remove reproducibility from the equation, the other element that's left is, is this different enough to appeal to anyone who isn't already in your gaming group? And this brings us to the age-old marketing thing of the unique selling point. Um, the fantasy heartbreaker is the uh, famous example of somebody's home D&D variant that they love so much that they thought other people would love it as much as they did. But what they haven't quite come to terms with is the thing that makes it awesome to you is that you were in it. It was your creation and you explored it and you create and you uh, went through this whole experience with your friends. But what is it about that that makes it different than all of the other F20 settings that currently exist? Um, and all of the other, uh, you know, if you're doing a rule set as well, all of the iterations of F20. And is that different enough to attract other people? I mean, these days you're just going to, if no one is interested, you're going to wind up with a big fat PDF uh, that just exists in virtual space rather than having 5,000 copies of the book that you published in order to bring the unit cost down sitting in your garage and uh, causing divorce proceedings to be initiated with your spouse. Um, but still, that's a lot of, of effort and heartbreak to, to go through. If you haven't then stepped back from the fun of the amazing game that you had and said, what is it about this game that nobody has yet that I'm bringing to the vocabulary of role-playing games that is going to make people want to play this instead of another sort of baseline F20 setting? Why are Pathfinder players going to abandon Galerion in order to play my setting or Ravenloft or Forgotten Realms or, or their own homemade settings for that matter. Yeah, I think that when you start edging into the question of settings, then it becomes a little bit easier to identify what might or what might not stand out or what might or might not sell, which are not necessarily the same things, but they, they tend to sort of point in the same direction like iron filings to a magnet. I think that trying to build a setting to sell or to be unique or to be interesting is easier than trying to build something around a whole play experience because the setting is something that is pretty much entirely in the designer's control. And ideally what you, uh, if you, if what you've noticed about your game or your, your awesome experience was that the setting really contributed to it and that you could only have had that game experience in that setting. I think that's an important goal. If you think about, could we have had this good, a, 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 a final session or this great an experience if we'd played in the Forgotten Realms or if we'd played in Galerion. And really what made it special was the player characters and the GM interacting in the moment, but it really could have been anything with orcs and, 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 and boggarts and whatnot. Then maybe that's not a possible thing. But if what made the setting great is, oh, what makes it great is that every geological stratum is a dead god and they all talk to each other and our clerics are all uh, miners and prospectors and, and that's why dwarves have this strange, super powerful ability that are like super psionic or whatever it is. And 
your your living geology setting. Now that's something that you can present, and someone else might have another batch of different stories with it. And instead of going in sort of the incredible uh, magical cyanic dwarf route, they're like, no, this is like a a metaphor for for fracking. And so we have these guys who are going out and drawing up magical power from the dead gods, and we have to decide if they're up to up to good or bad because they're making everyone rich. But on the other hand, it's dangerous, and the earthquake spirits are warning against us, and and the elves are all ticked off because that's what elves do. And you know that's a whole different story. And maybe that is something that you can look at in your setting, and you can say, is that quality of my setting? Was that essential to making my story good? And once you figured out what that quality is, ideally, it's got enough legs that it might make other people's story good, and it's not just your specific crazy group that really, really gets into geology because you were running it you know, at, uh, I don't know, Oklahoma University for a bunch of uh, petroleum engineering majors or whatever. So the practical test to determine whether your homebrew thing is something that you can bring to a wider audience brings us to a thing I always say, which is that uh, in the early design stages of your role-playing game, stop and decide for yourself what the 25-word booth pitch for your game is. So envision yourself, uh, you've decided to loot crane it and go out and evangelize your game, going to first to small conventions with the uh, Gen Con in the far distance of your eye as uh, something that eventually you want to spend the expensive booth cost to bring your game to the masses. So you're standing there at your uh, table in the dealer's hall and a uh, bleary-eyed, mildly look interested-looking gamer comes by and asks you to tell them about your game. So in 25 words or less, giving me the core activity of what I do in the game, can you sell me on why I should be interested in not even the money investment, that's actually a minor part of uh, getting people into role-playing games, but the time and emotional energy investment of your thing. So can you describe your game in an exciting way that uh, is compelling and makes it sound different than everybody else's and makes me want to play? Because the, that's what separates the fantasy heartbreaker guys from the people who go on to do something uh, successful that wins an audience, is that they answer is, well, in my game, you can do anything. Um, you know, that's the standard response of someone who doesn't have a pitch. So uh, do you have a great 25-word uh, uh, pitch that distinguishes you from what everybody else is doing and, and also seems fun and compelling, right? Because if the 25-word pitch is, well, you explore metallurgy, and uh, and you do a lot of uh, rock excavation. Again, that's going to kill at uh, in the Oklahoma Geology Department, but maybe not so broadly otherwise. So uh, there is your test to determine whether your your home brew can become a wider brew. Yeah, I, th I think that that's um, one of it. I think we want to also talk about uh, briefly maybe the other half of the question about the scenario, because he says in good usable published scenarios, and maybe with that the equivalent to the setting is the conflict and is that that does that do the same thing that the setting does so if the, what made it a really great conflict it what made it a great uh scenario or, or experiences again the the players and the gm working together you can't sell it but if it was the basic conflict that they were going after and you can say oh no i had the great idea to present titus andronicus as a role-playing game and that really worked great. That's the sort of thing maybe that you can take and, and port away, again, assuming you weren't running it for a bunch of drama students. Or you can say, no, I had this really great 
way to set up a griffin empire so that it was predatory and dangerous and did this and this and the other things, and maybe your griffin empire can come away and be its own scenario. I think that you, you not necessarily the story, because the story shares with the uh, the player characters what they did, but the conflict, the problem that they were trying to solve. And if that problem is reproducible and is uh, fascinating and was crucial to making your experience fun, that's the same element of that. So instead of your 25 words or less, what do I do in this setting? The 25 words or less is, what's this story about? What, what's the premise of this adventure? What's the premise? What's the bit? Yeah. Right. An exciting premise, which could include a, a core activity or a narrative hook or even a cool image, right? This is a, uh, the climactic fight occurs uh, uh, vertically on the side of a mountain, for example. Um, anything there that you uh, feel that you've done and nobody else has done or nobody else has done well, that again, if you can put it in a 25-word blurb while people are uh, scanning through all the different F20 PDF adventures on drive-through RPG, what is it about your adventure that stands out and will grab other people? And if you can still do something with that premise without forcing people into your particular player's resolution of that premise, then you're cooking with gas. Yeah, I, th I think that those are sort of the, the, the core answers to the question is, you know, what, what can be pulled out and what was separate from, from the interplay at the table. That sounds a lot like a summation, Ken, and when we get to a summation, we get to another hut. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tells us that once again we have entered the secret storage unit where Time Incorporated stores Ken's time machine, the vehicle that they send him back into the time stream to uh, adjust, edit, and reinterpolate. And this week, uh, I think they've uh, been struck by a bit of whimsy. Uh, time Incorporated found a cool article, uh, a listicle, as it were, on io9.com, which again we'll link to from the website. This this begins to raise questions about what my alleged supervisors at Time Incorporated are up to. I think this um, <laughs> they may be throwing a bone to an intern or something. This may be part of its youth outreach. Well, there you go. As long as it's youth outreach. There we go. Uh, so these kids today uh, thought that io9's uh, article on the top 10, uh, they call them failed utopias, but really mostly they're unbuilt Utopias. A couple of them got uh, built enough to fail, but most of them are still on the drawing board stage. So they uh, uh, saw all these different uh, possible utopias, and they decided to just give you free reign. Uh, maybe this is their gift to you, Ken, for uh, so many missions of great service uh, full of uh, atrocity and uh, vodka drinking, and they thought that they would give you a, sort of a, a f kind of free reign here. So they want you to pick uh, from this list of 10 unbuilt utopias the one utopia that you want to go back and arrange to have happen. And uh, I have some theories as to which one you're uh, going to go uh, for, but let's eliminate some of the obvious ones. Obviously, you're not going to want to go back and uh, allow Germania, the no. uh, a Nazi dream city, to be built. That's a, that's a no-brainer. You're not going to do that. Architecturally alone, that would be a crime, much less all the crime. But much, much less <laughs> war criminally a crime. Yes. Fordlandia, which was uh, an attempt by uh, Henry Ford to export his worldview to uh, the jungles of Brazil. Uh, I also bet you're going to pass that over. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that that's necessary. Uh, there's the uh, Ville Radius, which is uh, Le Corbusier's planned uh, city in which he was designing not only 
these uh, pure, some might say uh, brutalist buildings, but also the behavior of the people who lived in them. I bet you're not going to uh, go for that one. No, um, uh, we when we go back to Le Corbusier, it is not going to be to get his cities built. Let's just right. It's possibly going that. to be to learn to pronounce his name and then shove him into a into a glacier. Right. <laughs> um, a Seward City, which is entirely indoors, I think uh, perhaps uh, lacks Haitian zest. Uh, Songdo, which is a current city in South Korea, being uh, built along. Uh, modern new tech lines, I think, is sort of uh, disqualified on the grounds that it's not even clear that it's failed and it has been built. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking that Booze Town has a certain appeal to you and uh, Octagon City, but uh, are you, in fact, going to put those aside and go for Frank Lloyd Wright, who is your man, and Broadacre City? You know I am, Robin. I am going to get (laughs) Broadacre City built, and I am going to get Usonian Houses uh, from a, uh, a a curiosity of the architecture student to a standard feature of the American housing scene. Right, and we don't want to disappoint Jim Cambios. I'm sure in a future segment we'll, we'll get to Octagon City because it's uh, too good to leave alone. But for Ken's time machine purposes, so uh, why don't you start with the basic uh, briefing for our listeners on uh, your man, Frank Lloyd Wright. Okay, my man, Frank Lloyd Wright, is the greatest architect that ever lived, and I don't think that there's anyone who questions it except maybe the Italians who might uh, put in something for Bernini or somebody, but they're wrong. Frank Lloyd Wright is still ahead of his time. Stuff he was building at the turn of the last century is still barely being considered standard practice. He did passive solar before there was passive solar. He did buildings that conform to the land well before the environmental movement began. His buildings are beautiful in addition to being uh, uh, you know, uh, philosophically well thought out. And, of course, he was crazy as a bedbug, which makes him entertaining. He had a um, towering ego, which is why whenever he... It's almost as if he's an architect. It's almost as if. Whenever he built uh, a house, for example, he built it to the human scale of Frank Lloyd Wright's size, which is why the ceilings (laughs) are all low in Frank Lloyd Wright houses, uh, which is uh, part of his uh, delight. But he very much had a, a strong love for nature and a strong love for specifically the prairies of the Midwest and that sort of rolling hill country. And he looked at uh, the, the Ville Radius and rejected it, as all right-thinking people do, and instead proposed Broadacre City, which would be a large, open conurbation, not even a city. Every family gets an acre of land. The largest villages, which would be the sort of the economic collectives in Broadacre City, would have 10,000 people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's... Uh, a notion that the whole place would then be would be landscaped to the extent it could be. The food would be locally produced. Uh, all of the energy, ideally, would be locally produced. Everything about the city would be self-contained, but it wouldn't be like an arcology. It wouldn't be like um, Arcasanti that Paolo Solari wants to build. This is a an Eden, basically. It's a built Eden. And it being Frank Lloyd Wright, you can see a little skyscraper there just because. And So um, he was ahead on the, uh, the energy curve, ahead on the locavore curve. Yeah, everything that people look at and sort of say, maybe we could have this 21st century if we're all very good. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was designing in the, well, in some cases in the 19-teens. In Broadacre City case, he designed it in 1932 and then kept uh, pushing it and uh, working with urbanists and scholars and trying to make it work pretty much his whole life. So 1932 is probably a a poor place to build a utopia Mm -hmm. um, or a a poor time, rather. So how do you go back in time and uh, help uh, Frank achieve his vision? 
Well, I do it, as you might, uh, as long as this is all rewards for Ken, I do it by destroying the career of one of the great progressives in the Senate. <laughs> a a Haitian bank shot again. Yes. Uh, there's a fellow named George William Norris, who was a, uh, a congressman and then a senator from uh, the great state of Nebraska. He uh, was a progressive Republican. He refused to leave the Republican Party because he recognized that uh, joining the Progressive Party was a great way to never get elected to anything. So he stayed a Republican, but he was a, a very progressive Republican, and he ran for the Senate as a Republican in uh, Nebraska. He was ahead on the Rhino curve. Uh, yeah, exactly. And he, he ran um, uh, for the Senate in 1912 and won uh, handily and became a uh, senator. He was a staunch supporter of prohibition. He was a staunch supporter of uh, labor rights. He backed uh, Woodrow Wilson's early moves, but became an isolationist when he discovered that World War I was a terrible idea and was only making bankers rich, at least half of which is right. And he, of course, uh, does earn my uh, thanks for helping to bring the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations to crashing ruin. So my way of getting rid of Norris is to have Warren Harding appoint him ambassador to Germany. And I think that if you sort of presented it to him as a progressive, this is a new a new country, and they and it's not their fault that the war happened. The Germans would like him because he was against the war. Uh, he was one of the only six senators to vote against uh, entering the war in 1917. And he, his agrarian interest, obviously, would have been helpful for a country that's trying to rebuild its uh, food supply after the, the, the privations and destruction of World War One, And so I think that he might have gone for it, and if he hadn't gone for it, I'm sure with enough time machine-based persuasion, we could get Nebraska Republican Party to make him go for it, uh, because it isn't going to take that much uh, drinking with them to convince them that a dry Republican who hates everything they stand for is not someone they want in the Senate. And, and an appointment to be ambassador of Germany is not necessarily going to destroy his career permanently. It might just sidetrack it long enough for you to... Uh, to get my, uh, my Bodecker City built. Because the other thing that uh, George William Norris does to get up my nose is he prevents Henry Ford from buying uh, what's called the Wilson Dam. It was named after Woodrow Wilson because it was being built as a war measure to generate power. And, and thus, in your opinion, is one of America's worst dams. It, it is one of America's worst dams. But... We can save it by having it bought by Henry Ford. And then maybe he also doesn't bother with Fordlandia because he's got his money tied up in Alabama. The bit is that Henry Ford wanted to basically build the TVA avant l'Electra. He wanted to electrify the South and use it as another source of, uh, of factories and power generation that would increase, you know, first of all, increase his own fat bankroll, but also it would give him more sources of electrical power, which, of course, he recognized as the key to industrial productivity. So, Frank Lloyd Wright and um, uh, Henry Ford sort of bounce off each other over and over. Frank Lloyd Wright is called in to design Henry Ford's house, but then he gets bored and goes off to Europe, and so Henry Ford hires Frank Lloyd Wright's assistant, and then Frank Lloyd, and then Henry Ford goes to Europe and comes back and says, oh no, don't make it so American, make it all European-y. And so that's why Fairlane is not a particularly attractive building. But Wright and Ford definitely move in the same circles. They're both buddies with Edison. They're all in that sort of techno-utopian progressive, in the sense of business progressive, uh, sphere, if you will. The only sense in which Henry Ford is progressive. Well, you know, it's uh, one of those interesting things about progressives. They, they colonize a lot. But uh, Henry Ford is also got a very strong interest in making sure that his workers are happy. That's why he keeps raising their pay when all the other uh, industrialists in America are 
failing to do so because he realizes he's got an investment in a guy who can build a Ford car, and as long as he keeps that guy paid and happy, that guy doesn't go work for Chrysler or GM or some other, uh, you know, also ran. So there is a immediate interest that Ford and Wright would have in creating a sort of um, better living conditions. And it, again, it's 1921 in Alabama. The living conditions do not have to get that much better to be better. So this is where Frank Lloyd Wright's Usonian houses, which are small houses that can be built on uneven land. They're passive solar heated. They have radiant floor heating, natural lighting with clear story windows all around. They're gorgeous little homes. They could be built almost as cheaply as a Sears Roebuck house, maybe cheaper, depending on, you know, exactly what kind of local materials you have. But he begins designing the Usonians officially in 1936, but he being right, he's been dinking around with these notions forever. And Frank Lloyd Wright is lovely because he calls it Usonia because he considers America to European a word. Because it's <laughs> named after an Italian guy. Wright, Wright liked the term Usonia. So, so he, he was a, a nomenclature locavore as well. He was a lot of locavore. Um, and uh, Wright, Wright liked the Usonian house. So I can see where one long, drunken conference and uh, contract signing session away from getting Frank Lloyd Wright backing from Henry Ford to design the houses that all the new workers at uh, Henry Ford's dam are going to live in the Usonian house. And it's, and once it's not a one-off, every single one is designed by Frank Lloyd Wright for a, for a, a customer, a customer, the size of Frank Lloyd, Wright. right? Uh, <laughs> but it becomes a, a thing that you can build. And some people did build Usonians from kits. The technology is completely existent. I'm, I'm in, I'm inventing nothing new here that you could have a, a bunch of Usonian houses all around the Wilson dam project, then all around the electrical power works, then all around muscle shoals in Florence, Alabama. And eventually Broadacre City could just sort of spring up naturally, as Frank Lloyd Wright would want, because, again, there isn't really a city there in Alabama already, and so what you have is a bunch of small conurbations. Each of them, obviously, the power comes from the dam, and then later from the rest of the Tennessee Valley, because this only is a pilot project for Henry Ford. He's going to start electrifying Tennessee, and again, this is going to be 15, 20 years before the TVA, before FDR does it uh, with the New Deal, and... Once Wright gets the notion to sort of create an entire community this way, he's going to have so much money from Wright's to Usonian houses, because by now tens of thousands of them have been built, that he's going to be able to fund Broadacre City. Maybe Henry Ford will kick in a couple of nickels. Maybe the state of Alabama will. Who knows? But the funding is not going to be impossible to get, especially in 1932 if the alternative is letting Franklin Stalino Roosevelt come in and do it. And I think that between um, uh, bullheaded opposition to Roosevelt, uh, the Depression, and uh, the existence of a pretty much successful pilot project in Alabama, you could probably get Broadacre City built in the 1930s in uh, the hilly and clement South. And I think that that would be that that would be good in a lot of different ways, not least because it you know industrializes and advances the South uh, economically, which of course is the key eventually to advancing the South out of its feudal Jim Crow mindset. It's the creation of the small middle class of, of the middle class in, in the towns and the cities that provides the funding for Martin Luther King's movement, that provides the political support for anti-segregationist uh, candidates. And the sooner you get that built up in the South, the sooner you can get the South out of the way. Now, we just have to cross our fingers and hope that George W. Norris is at least as good as Alanson B. Houghton, the actual ambassador to Germany uh, appointed by Harding. 
But given what happens to Germany, he could hardly do a worse job. But uh, Houghton did do a pretty good job and tried to give the Germans a fair shake. So we should um, uh, find him something nice to do. This is probably just going back, but I, I want to make sure that we make clear uh, how does getting uh, Norris out of there allow all of these uh, things to happen? Well, because Norris hated the notion of Henry Ford because he was a rich guy, and he was a rich guy from the East, not from Nebraska. And he thought that Wilson Dam should be federal land, and uh, whatever he thought, he thought that no one should be selling it to Henry Ford for a sweetheart price. And he just threw up obstacle after obstacle after obstacle in the Senate to prevent the deal from going through. And this is despite, uh, obviously, despite, you know, lots of other people wanting to do Henry Ford favors, despite Thomas Edison's uh, buy-in as it would be a great place for electrification, and despite Calvin Coolidge allegedly trying to ram the uh, the, 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 the Muscle Shoals uh, Wilson Dam deal through as a favor to Henry Ford for supporting him in 1922, or rather supporting him in 1924. Despite all of this, Norris is, you know, once it, when his back is up, his back stays up, as we discovered with the uh, Treaty of Versailles, and so he manages to shut the Henry Ford-Wilson Dam deal down. The sort of result is that he, for the first time in his life, pays attention to Alabama, and then decides that what it really needs is a good federal electrification project. But the alternative, of course, is to have it done, you know, 20 years earlier, and by uh, private industry as opposed to the federal government, which is something that Henry Ford and I, and even Frank Lloyd Wright, probably all agree on. Uh, well, you've uh, added enough later knock-on effects, I think, to uh, placate the progressives uh, uh, in in the long run on your uh, plan of this utopia that makes the things around it utopian. So I think Time Incorporated can deem uh, this particular bit of uh, whimsy uh, into something that was well worth doing, proving the value of lateral thinking in assigning you things. And proving the value of giving your employees awesome houses to live in and trusting them to uh, design their own utopia. And, and speaking of proving things, if anyone wonders, uh, you know, to what extent we prepare ahead and to what extent we actually uh, listen to each other and let the discussion go where it will, in the, in the Tradecraft Hut segment, I didn't even get to my conspiracy theory about how the creation of the chicken tic-tac-toe theory was part of a conspiracy to push Ian Curtis, the lead singer of Joy Division, into suicide. So, uh, you know, uh, gems get left on the table here at uh, Ken and Robin talking well, about what stuff. I think Robin is trying to say is we produce so many gems that even the podcast length is insufficient to show them all off to your glittering and uh, dwarven eye. And uh, now that you've pointed out the length of this podcast, it's time to bring it to a close. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Phoenix. Atlas Games. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Preserve our utopian dream by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Join such illustrious donors as... Dylan Craig. Tim Isaacson. And the wildly munificent Gene Lancaster. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>